0: listening to By The Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people.
1: Hello, I'm Sean Winter.
0: And I'm Robin Whittaker. And this is a special episode. Um, I've asked Sean to sit down with us as someone who teaches Romans and is a bit of an expert in Romans and Paul generally, uh, to help us kind of do a Romans 101. <laughs> He's, I've told him he just needs to distill entire semesters worth of Romans class into about 20 minutes, so that's our goal today. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> but there is a, there's several weeks of Romans in Lent, uh, the season we're in right now as we record this, but also in the Pentecost season. So this is the year of the lectionary where we get you know huge chunks of yep. Romans and it is uh, yep. worth thinking about and thinking with and maybe Preaching on
1: Absolutely. It. I, I've often encouraged preachers who use the lectionary to maybe just take uh, at least one time each year where there's a little run of kind of Pauline second reading. Um yep uh consecutive readings just to pause and just to kind of create a short series of five or six weeks where you just expose people to some of these other parts of the new testament and of course the pauline tradition is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the nature of christian faith and the way in which it develops so um i think some attention to it is needed even if it feels hard and even if people don't like paul very much you (laughs) you still need to do business with him somehow
0: that's right we cannot ignore him that's right um So Romans begins, Paul, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then it goes on. Um, So we know it's Paul. It's considered one of the authentic Pauline letters, maybe a later one. Sean, give us a sense of maybe do we know where Paul was when he wrote this? Do we know who the Romans are that he's writing to? and is there an occasion that perhaps something that sparked this?
1: Yeah um, we can be reasonably clear, I think when I teach Romans I actually we actually begin at the end. Um, because the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16, is an extensive list of kind of greetings. And uh, from those greetings, we can do some kind of working out of where Paul was and uh, perhaps what um, was going on in some aspects of the Roman church. So we think Paul is writing from Corinth. Uh, We think that he is writing in anticipation of a journey that he plans to make to Rome. Um, And the journey that he plans is... Um, something that he intends to do because his actual vision of what his apostolic vocation is is that he's to take the gospel as far west in the Roman Empire mm. as is possible. So he talks about going ultimately to Spain. Yep. So uh, Rome is on the way and Paul's strategy... Um, missionary strategy seems to have been obviously to plant churches um, or work with churches in particularly important strategic locations in the Roman Empire and there's nothing more strategic than Rome Mm. itself. So he's writing from Corinth. We think Paul arrived in Corinth in about the middle of AD, uh, 51 CE. Not AD, sorry, i slipped back into (laughs) old usage there momentarily.
0: I'm sure some of our listeners will (laughs) be familiar with
1: that. Uh, So 51 CE, uh, Acts tells us that he stayed around 18 months. So we think that probably Romans is written late 51, early 52, um, around there.
0: And and that means in that timeline he has not visited this community. No, absolutely. So so he knows
1: they exist and he knows people um, and there are networks of relationships that come probably from either trade networks or networks to do with slave families or members of the imperial household. Um, The letters only give us the broadest of indications but it's pretty clear Paul was a well-networked person in the ancient world. Um, mm. He had uh, he had a, a large contact list of one sort or another. So he knows something about this church and he's certainly been receiving news about it. We, we think that, so uh, there are any number of books out there that will tell you um, 15 reasons why Paul wrote Romans and none of those reasons, uh, all of them kind of disagree with each other to a certain extent. Any number <laughs> of scholarly theories, right? Yes. I guess most people are very used to the idea of thinking of Romans as um this is paul's theology set out uh, in its most kind of comprehensive and total form so paul isn't really writing a letter here he's writing mm-hmm. you know a proto version of what like you know 1960 years later will become a the theology ch- the, the, book the church dogmatics yes. or something or other you know it's it's the kind of first attempt and the reason people think this is particularly because of the influence of the Protestant Reformation and the way in which Paul's articulation of things in Romans defines central aspects of the Protestant protest against aspects of Roman medieval Roman Catholic theology, and therefore it becomes identified with theology, Christian theology per se. And there are some real problems that come from doing that, I think, which we might come onto uh, a bit later yeah. on. Yep. But I think that Romans isn't written as anything other than what we might call a kind of philosophical letter. So it is a genu- It is a genuine letter to genuine recipients in real-life circumstances. It just happens to be blooming long. All right? And
0: rather dense. And rather dense.
1: <laughs> and um, so...
0: But we know there were other letters like this, right? The the, the, the philosophical or the more literary letter was still a real letter. Very often
1: written to individuals rather than to communities. Um, So the letters of Seneca or Cicero or others. But no, philosophers wrote that the letter was a form for what we often call um, either protrepsis, so this kind of conversion of people to a way of life, Mm -hmm. or what we call paranesis, which is the kind of deepening of people's commitment to a certain philosophy or worldview. Romans is quite clearly that kind of letter in one way or another. So the circumstances don't get mentioned until the last section of the letter. Okay. So you don't really find out what's going on until the end. So all of the opening chapters of theology are kind of build up towards addressing the real question. And the circumstances seem to be, broadly speaking, something like this that there was some degree of conflict between uh, Roman house churches or Roman assemblies um, that were uh, practising, for example, um, Sabbath laws, uh, eating kosher food, that were largely Jewish in their patterns of ritual and cultic observance still, Mm -hmm. probably occupied by those who were ethnically Jewish but had become Christ believers. And then there were house churches that had a much more law-free or less law-observant understanding of Christian faith, probably populated primarily by pagan Christ-believers. The conflict between those two groups probably had a history, something to do with the expulsion of the Jews from Rome in 49 of the Common Era and then their return. Um, And Paul seems to have a particular beef with the Gentiles, with the pagans. Mm.
0: So I
1: think that Romans is primarily written to actually tell the pagans who think that they're superior to those um, you know, Jewish Jews. believers yes. um, that uh, actually they, they're misunderstanding a whole lot about what has God, God has been up to in uh, calling them into relationship with Christ um, mm. if they ignore uh, that history, that heritage, that culture. Um, and uh, Romans 9 to 11 is the main section of the letter which kind of gives evidence of that argument, I think.
0: Yeah, and hence, I mean, Paul does this everywhere, but the, the constant sort of rooting this in the broader covenant and the Old Testament promises, right, that this, you know, You know, Paul himself was Jewish, we know this, but for him, Christianity, even though he fights really hard in other places for the inclusion of the Gentiles, um, it's never at the cost of rejecting Judaism. Absolutely. And Paul
1: Paul doesn't think that, although although much biblical scholarship kind of conceives of Paul kind of taking Jews on the one hand and Gentiles on the other and and mashing them together and (laughs) saying, and now you're this new category of kind of, you know, this new third category of people called Christians, um, a third race or something. Mm. Um, In actual fact, in the first century context, what Paul is doing is simply demonstrating that pagans can't be members of the covenant community without taking that covenant and its history with full seriousness. And they certainly um, can't boast and uh, be arrogant in their relationship with their fellow Christ believers who uh, are ethnically Jewish and have um, ritual and ethical practices that Mm. go along with that.
0: So, it's really helpful to keep that framing in mind that we've got this um, situation of conflict between Jewish and Gentile Christ believers. And also, that broader context you've alluded to that we we know, you know, there's the 49, we know later after this, uh, the fires in Rome would be blamed on Jews and Christians. But, you know, there's a fair bit of scapegoating of Jews going on at this time. So, Um, Sean, tell us. If we were to try and sort of map or just get our heads around the broad movements, like the structure of Romans, are there things we can kind of hang our hat on, you know, that like one to four does this? and yeah. h- How would you kind of divide it up for us to kind of think? in?
1: Well, I, so I think so, and I, I think probably br- most people would agree broadly four sections. Yep. Um, so chapters one to four, which are the most famous sections, Uh, not least because chapter 3 in particular became such an influential text for Martin Luther and and, and the Mm -hmm. Reformation. Um, And broadly speaking, those are chapters which try and articulate why it is that Jews and pagans um, alike come into this covenant community as descendants of Abraham, Mm -hmm. um, as members of uh, the body of the Messiah, how they come in on the same basis. And what Paul does is kind of retrospectively argue back and say something along the lines of the reason they come in on the same basis, which is by faith, is because they are all actually subject to the same situation of, well, Paul calls it sin. Yes. Um, and uh, he does this by playing an, any number of different rhetorical, quite sophisticated rhetorical games that get those who might be ethnically Jewish – to look at what pagans do and think, oh gosh, isn't that dreadful? And then switches to a certain extent to say, but hold on a minute, even in your, aren't there things that you do that are the equivalent? And effectively what Paul is doing is trying to find an argument that says, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is, yeah. the fundamental issue here is being under what Paul, Paul says is being under sin or under the power of sin. And uh, we can talk about sin language if you want to. But much of Romans 1 to 3 begins with demonstrating the reality of the power of sin in the world affecting Jew and Gentile Gentile alike. And on that basis, Paul then says, well, we need then something that undoes the power of sin. And Paul believes that the death and and resurrection of Christ does that.
0: Hence the cross. So there's that... um, the common human experience, and we will come back to sin and perhaps unpack what that language, particularly the way Paul uses that language, uh, because it's language that I think, well, a lot of more liberal Christians become increasingly um, uncomfortable with, partly because of the way it's being used. But yeah, there's a commonality of human experience. that means.
1: I mean, we can dwell on this, and I'd I'd say two more things quickly. Mm. The first is that I don't think it's true that Paul started out as a Jew, thinking, oh my gosh, we're all sinful.
0: Yes. How, how
1: has God solved it? You know, What do we do now? Yeah. In fact, all the evidence suggests that Paul didn't feel sinful as a Jew at all. He thought he was
0: rather no, good yeah, and, I was going to say, and, he yeah, thought he right. was a pretty, pretty great Jew <laughs> pretty, and pretty was successful. following the law and therefore was right with God. Yep.
1: So whereas there are versions of the Christian gospel that start off with the first thing you need to know is that you're a guilty sinner,
0: mm.
1: and Romans supports that in its structure, I don't think Paul's gospel begins there. Paul's gospel yeah. begins with... God has revealed God's Son, and in the death and resurrection of the Son, God has revealed God's saving power and deliverance. So if that's the case, then what the hell are we being delivered from? And so it's retrospectively working back to this account of the universa- universality that, of sin. Yeah. And the second thing to say is that almost nowhere does Paul have in sight sin as bad things that human beings yes. happen to do to each other. Um it's it's sin with a capital S much of the time yep. as a controlling power or force at work in the world, reflecting, I think, Paul's basic apocalyptic worldview. I was
0: going to say that takes us to that apocalyptic landscape of Paul, right, where, where sin is, I mean, another word for it might be, in a sense, evil, yep. like right, stuff that takes us away from God that has power over us that we need to be liberated yeah, from. And, and Paul probably thinks and, of
1: that in mythical terms yes. that are quite problematic for us today. But nonetheless, it's not It's not about what human beings do. Sin is something that is done to human beings by an objective power that acts upon them mm. in... in uh, deleterious ways.
0: But that distinction you made before I think is so helpful, so I just want to repeat it, that that Romans might begin with sin as the common condition, but Paul's gospel, or the way Paul imagines the gospel and the significance of Jesus, doesn't begin with we're all miserable sinners and we need a a solution.
1: And it's not even true that Romans begins with sin, because Romans actually begins with I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith and in it the righteousness of God is believed. So the declaration of the gospel is the first note of Romans. And, and, the then stuff he deals about, with, and then yeah. he goes back to work out what the hell the problem was in the first
0: place. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens? So that's one to four. So that's one to four yeah. <laughs> what happens next?
1: Chapters five to eight uh, is really um, best understood, I think, as a further exploration of the significance and the reality of Christ's death and resurrection and the difference that it now makes in human life and experience. Um, a number of different metaphors. Um, We talk in a recent podcast about the metaphor of reconciliation. We have the metaphor of um, being baptized into Christ. Um, We have Paul's account of the wrestle between the power of sin and death and the power of the Spirit in his own life or in the the reality of the human condition in chapter 7. And then we have an extensive narrative about the the gift of the Spirit. All of these are ways of thinking, I think, about what it means to live in the reality of this new creation that Christ's death and resurrection uh, establishes. So that's chapters 5 to 8. And I think they're really, really important chapters Mm. for understanding what's happening theologically for Paul. Yep. Chapters 9 to 11 then deal specifically with the issue of what that means for the telling of Israel's story and the place and role of Israel in what we often call salvation history. Um, And in particular, Paul's concern there seems to be to say um, that Gentiles need to understand that they are grafted onto a story that already exists. Mm -hmm. Um, in, when When uh, God raised jesus from the dead he didn't start, god didn 't start the story again. Um, this is the outworking of the story that was
0: yeah.
1: uh, made in the covenant promises to israel and, and Gentiles are either brought into that story or they, they don 't belong to it at all
0: yeah, he seems to uh, you know want to correct any idea that um, you know Jesus came because all the rest of that was wrong or something yeah, that's right? right you, you know?
1: now, absolutely so it 's not that it 's wrong. Um, uh, Paul will deal with the question of, you know, why has Israel rejected the proclamation Mm. of the gospel? Um, But he's very, very clear that there is no sense in which uh, the story of Israel has stopped. It's now being worked out with with the fundamental challenge of what it means to have pagans as a part of that story without needing to obey the law. And that's the crucial kind of difference. And then chapters 12 through to 15, 16, including the greetings, really move us into what we call the ethical part of Romans. Mm. There's a big shift at um, chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul moves from saying this is what God has done, this is what salvation means, this is who Jesus is, to saying now, and now this is what you should do. Yep. And the focus seems to be partly on this conflict that I've just described, partly on the question of how do you do all this in the reality of the Roman imperial context? So we have that quite difficult text in Romans 13 where Paul seems to suggest that one way of dealing with that context is to basically do what they ask you and behave yourselves. Be subject to the authorities. subject to the governing authorities. Um, And... uh, Uh, And and that's, I think, uh, to be read not as a theology of church and state, but as Paul's specific advice to a specific community facing specific circumstances. That makes a difference to the way that we we read it. But the other thing that comes through is Paul's very strong insistence on the way in which um, God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, God's love Mm. shown for us in the death and the resurrection of Christ, is now the love that should mark out the practice of the Christian community, both internally and in its relationship with others. Yes. So, in chapter thirteen, we have an emphasis on the love command. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: it's there in uh, chapters fourteen and fifteen in the way that they people relate to each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, this notion of an ethic of love is developed for for the community is developed, I think, with um, deep seriousness in those later chapters.
0: Yes. And this is where we get, again, some of those famous passages about, you know, the imagery of, of members of the body, different giftedness, um, not judging, you know, a lot. So I just want to come back um, or, or develop a little bit more something you said. So if we think of this last section of the, is this sort of ethical, ethical teaching or, um, you know, implications of having been made right with God and living into that um, – I think we run into an issue with Pauline ethics where we can read – well, we run into several issues, but let me name one um, – where we can read this as normative or yep. prescriptive, yep. right? And and yet if we remember this is a letter, it's addressing a particular set of circumstances in a particular time and place. So how do you as a Pauline scholar kind of think through, you know, when Paul says something like yeah. – you know give respect to the authorities they're yeah, the yeah, authorities yeah. you know don't yeah. rock the boat yeah. um, how do we consider what might be timeless teaching versus yeah. something that's actually quite contextual
1: well so the way that i think about it is to, to to just try and take seriously the dynamics of what we see in all of paul's letters and then texts like romans if you ask what's core for paul it's very clear everywhere that he writes that what is core for him and what his apostolic vocation is fundamentally oriented towards is the proclamation of something that he calls the gospel. Mm -hmm. And the gospel for him is primarily an account of what God has done for creation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if that's the core, if that's what Paul's apostolic ministry is fundamentally oriented towards – then it is absolutely understandable that Paul will spend much of his time trying to tell people what that means Yep. and what it looks like and how you live it mm. and what it means for your behaviour. So there's nothing unsurprising about the fact that Paul tells people what to do a lot.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: However, neither should it be unsurprising that when Paul is doing that in very occasional letters written to specific circumstances – um
0: in the 50s, between, 50s in the 50s, the 50s between entry. 20
1: and 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus that what we see is Paul actually trying to like he hasn't arrived at a position he's nice. he's simply trying to work out what this means in context yeah and sometimes Paul does that very radically so in relation to Jews and Gentiles or Jews and pagans what The position he reaches is a very solid, strong, conviction or position against the majority of the rest of the early Christian movement, perhaps, mm. that it means that these pagans can be part of the movement now without any kind of law or minimal levels yeah, of law. no, of law circumcision, no circumcision, no circum- kosher right, food. Exactly. Yep, yep. So he's absolutely radical and consistent on that. When you ask him about how it relates to issues of gender, well... Mm. Yeah, sometimes he seems to say things that are quite kind of liberative and it makes all the difference in the world kind of a thing. And other times he just collapses back into basic, you know, uh, gender hierarchies that are are familiar to him. First century,
0: fairly elite male. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Um, So, So I think Paul's ethics are contextual. I also think that they are constructed in a way that Paul's I mean Paul's convictions theological convictions are also constructions but they have a core nature to them so one of the things that I sometimes tell students and uh, this gets me into trouble in some places is (laughs) I think it's possible to take Paul's theology seriously and to work out from it and come to ethical conclusions that are diametrically opposed to the ethical conclusions that Paul Paul himself came to so I sometimes say sometimes we need to be more Pauline than Paul is
0: Yeah, Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because Paul isn't always fully consistent in the way that these things work themselves out. Now, I know that there's questions about you know an understanding of the authority of Scripture and the theology of what's going on in biblical texts that are um, left uh, you know for us to explore there. But it seems to me that the reason for taking Paul seriously primarily. Mm. is because Paul's articulation of the Christian gospel is the earliest that we have. It's the most influential that we have. And it's actually the first Christian articulation of the gospel because whatever the ministry of Jesus is, it's not about the proclamation of Christian faith. Jesus is a first century Jew proclaiming Jewish renewal for the people of Israel. So it's the first post-resurrection articulation that we have. It sets the agenda for pretty much everything that follows through enormous conflicts that's why Paul's important
0: yeah even and if you don't like him you the can't main reason for people him.
1: not reading Paul is they don't like his ethics yes and i think that's
0: so separating those out can actually Absolutely. be quite helpful.
1: They belong together, yeah. of course, in Paul's mind. Yes. But some degree of separation actually provides us with a way of reading Paul and thinking about a text like Romans in a way that I think can serve ethical commitments towards yeah. justice and liberation and, and, and lots of other yeah. things. Um, and uh, tomorrow morning I'm about to teach a course called Theology and Ethics in Paul which explores exactly those kinds of questions.
0: Yeah, and and there's certainly scholars, and we can even put some in, in the show notes, um you know who've done exactly that who've who've had a look at you know the way Paul argues that gentiles don't need to be circumcised in you know Galatians and applies that to the contemporary church in the, in the same way we draw boundaries around certain things so there's a working out from the theology what that might mean in the 21st century as opposed to the first absolutely
1: I, I think I think um, many of the scholars who are doing very serious theological work with Paul and um, particularly in the apocalyptic school scholars yep. like Douglas Campbell Beverly Gaventer
0: yep. and
1: others um, whose exegetical conclusions you may disagree with are very clear about how theology and ethics work in a creative dynamic in the Pauline tradition and the others are scholars who particularly work on the whole question of Paul in the context of the Roman Empire who are fairly clear that what Paul is saying theologically um, lends itself to some pretty radical um, uh, political and um, communal kinds of uh, um, commitments. The other people, interestingly, are continental French philosophers, largely Marxist who about 20 or 30 years ago all started reading Romans again and writing books about Romans because (laughs) they saw in Paul uh, an ethical and a political radicalism they weren't seeing within uh, broader philosophical traditions in their own day.
0: Or other Christian interpretive traditions. Um, So let me ask you a last question, uh, Sean, which is reading suggestions. I particularly like Beverly Gaventa, who you've just mentioned. She has a, a... Shortish book on Romans called When in Romans.
1: Great title, Beverly. That's yeah, uh, fantastic.
0: Yeah, And I mean, it's also for someone like me who's not a Pauline scholar. I mean, I am a New Testament scholar, but it, it's very readable and I think helps navigate people without, you know. Are there other things? The, the other Barring most, you having written yeah, 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 How to Read mag, Romans, My yet, magnum so opus. So, get on that. Um,
1: the, uh, the other most recent book is a, there's a very helpful commentary by Michael Gorman um, mm-hmm. called Romans, A Theological and Pastoral Commentary. And uh, I have a lot of time for uh, Mike's work, and I think this is, for preachers in particular, it's a really good commentary to get you into some of these questions. And it's got discussion questions and everything else at the end of each section. It's very clearly written, very accessible, 250 pages long. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's a really good recommendation. So that would be
0: great for those who might want to do a Bible study or something yeah. in the congregation as well. Well, thanks so much, Sean. I hope that's given all of you out there listening um, a bit of an insight or actually quite a deep dive into Romans and uh, to maybe encourage you to think about preaching this difficult text. Thanks, Robin. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.